According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10, we are looking at verses 6 through 11. This is point 8 in the outline, looking at verses 6 through 11. We have a 6-verse, 12-line inclusio which paints the present and future contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Verses 6 through 12. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our time of study today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you for your faithfulness, Father, and call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us ears to hear, Father, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, Start with verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is blessed. But the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. I want to stop and preach that one for about six weeks. The doctrine of the babbling fool. And uh, anyway, I kind of take some of these verses personally. Verse 9, he who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. He who winks the eye causes trouble and a babbling fool will be ruined. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. All right, and so here we have it. Here's verses 6 through 11, and that's the section that we're dealing with. This is point 8 in the outline. If I can bring the correct slide up here. Perhaps. I used to be able to just put in a number, and it would take me there. guess not. There we go. Wake up. Strange. Okay. Why does my keyboard not work? Down arrow, up arrow. Huh. All right, we'll do this the slow way. (laughs) There it is. A six-verse, 12-line inclusio. I meant to take the N off that. It's not the word inclusion. It's the word inclusio. All right? And inclusio is a Latin expression that references a style of poetry, a style of of layout in the sense what I usually call the sandwich formation, whereby you've got a top loaf of bread, a, a bottom slice of bread, and then the meat of the sandwich is in the middle. And we have that here with the righteous and the wicked. And uh, you can see how it opens up here in verse 6 with the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And that very same inclusio will then close the section in verse 11 with the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And so you've got that wicked mouth 
that opens and closes this sandwich. All right, And that's what we're going to talk about today is the nature of that wicked mouth. The nature of keeping things concealed whereby everything seems happy and pleasant and peaceful and fun and wonderful until the mouth opens and you realize, oh, that's a vampire. <laughs> All right, Oh, that's a zombie or oh, that's whatever. You know, uh, Horror movies do the same thing. Everything seems normal until she opens her mouth and those teeth come out and, and they eat you. Um, that's the, the nature of it. And the scripture describes that. All right. And so uh, we'll be dealing with that. And in between then, we've got um, a pattern here. It's called the ABAB pattern in uh, verses 7 and 9 that are in tandem and verses 8 and 10 that are in tandem. And we, when we write ABAB in the, in the poetic formula there, that shows us the, the structure of the, uh, of the poetry. And so you might have spotted, for example, the babbling fool was mentioned twice, mentioned in verse 8 and then mentioned again in verse 10. Those are the two B components of the ABAB structure. Uh, Likewise, in uh, verse 7 and in verse 9, we have um, uh, the contrast there between the righteous and the wicked in, in its own parallel. All right? So with respect to the head versus the mouth, what's the difference? Okay, One is fully out there to be seen, and then the other is hidden until it's too late. And uh, we have the contrast there. This is just the strangest thing that my keyboard's not responsive. Hello? Wake up. All right. Well, we'll just do this. Blessings on the head are in full view for open display. Anything that you sit on your head, anyone can, can stare at, right? And uh, that's a, a contrast here. The blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals. And so when you're relating the verbs back and forth, you've got are, you know, the state of being is, they are on the head versus concealed. And uh, the point being is, is the concealment in the, in the, uh, uh, on the one hand with the person that's wicked, and then there's no concealment whatsoever. If you're trying to hide something, then the dumbest place you can put it is on top of your head, right? That's the dumbest place to put something you're trying to hide. The point being, if you've got nothing to hide, put it up there. And uh, that's the the nature of a crown. That's where the glory is. Uh, That's what you're celebrating. That's what you're showing off. And that's why crown and and blessings are used in, in parallel the way that they are. And so... We looked at these verses. I won't spend a ton of time on that, but remember the, the, the head is the place of blessing. When the Father puts His hand on the head, it's identifying with that Son and bestowing the best blessing upon that Son. And Joseph had an issue with the fact that Jacob had crossed his arms in order to bless the younger over the older. And um, Jacob, uh, or Joseph should have uh, been the last one to complain about the older serving the younger because he was one of the youngest of the sons, the second youngest son, and he was in charge of all the brothers. He was in charge of all his siblings in, uh, in that regard. But Proverbs 10, 6, we can grab these. Uh, we'll leave the Genesis ones alone, but just to remind ourselves what we looked at a week ago, uh, Proverbs eleven twenty six. Uh, he who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Blessing on his head. Okay, And, you know, obviously, uh, blessings is like water. It flows downhill. <laughs> so if the blessing is on your head, then it's going to cover, you know, metaphorically, it's going to cover all of you. Uh, chapter 12 and verse 4. 
An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Remember, what's a crown? A crown is a blessing that you sit on your head. Okay? It is something that is valuable. It is something that is pretty. It is something that is, uh, you know, uh, you don't want to lose track of where it is. Okay? Everything that you would describe of, of a wife. Okay? She's valuable. She's pretty. You don't want to lose track of where she is. Uh, so keeping her on your head is a, is a good place to keep your crown. Um, but that's the, uh, the reference there in Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in the bones. Proverbs 16.31. 16.31. A gray head is the crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. And this is what uh, in the elderly have to show off. And, uh, you know, don't, don't deny it, don't hide it, you know, just celebrate it for what it is. God was gracious enough to let you live that long, you know, and, and, and uh, enjoy the wisdom that comes with that, see. Proverbs uh, 17, 6, grandchildren are the crown of old men. Again, it's kind of like the gray hair, you know, and I think they go together. I was kind of mentioning the other day, as long as I've got gray hair coming in, I probably ought to start having some grandchildren one of these days, and might as well if you're going to have the gray hair anyway. But no, I'm not trying to pressure my, uh, my married child. Um, but there it is, all right? That's 17.6. So we have it. Now, in contrast, in contrast to the blessings which ought to be in full public view, which ought to be on display, there's no reason to hide a blessing. There's no reason to hide the work of God in your life what it is that God is providing, what it is that God is, is uh, celebrating, what it is that God is sharing, all of these things, they are reason for rejoicing. And we can rejoice in ourselves, we can rejoice in others, all right? I think it's, uh, obviously it's a mark of carnality when you are not capable of rejoicing in the success of others. <laughs> and you stop to say, well, wait a minute, if you observe somebody else being blessed, why are they so wealthy? Why are they so... Uh, why do they have such a pretty wife? Why do they have, you know, whatever? And you start grumbling over the blessings that this other person has. Why is that? We should be rejoicing in those who rejoice, sharing in these things. Now, uh, so blessings ought to be on public display. There's no reason to hide any blessing at any time. Whereas the wicked mouth is a place of concealment. And this is what we have as being um, driven as a contrast, again, back to Proverbs 10 and verse 6. Whereas the blessings are on the head, the mouth conceals. The mouth conceals. In order for the mouth to conceal, that means you got something shoved all the way up in there and the mouth is shut. Because okay? if, if, it's, if it's not all the way in the mouth with the mouth shut, you're not concealing whatever it is that you're concealing. All right, uh, But that's what we have described here, is the mouth conceals violence. And not just here, but we have it throughout. We have it in various places whereby the damage can be done uh, before the person even realizes that they're vulnerable. Before they even realize that the person that's about to inflict all that damage is out to get them. And that's because the mouth conceals violence. Uh, same chapter, we have it in verse 11. The other uh, bread to the sandwich, the other portion of the inclusio. Uh, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And this is a principle that we'll have in some of the subpoints or some of the later 
points as we identify the fact that the mouth, you know, was God kind of stupid to give us the mouth that he gave us? You know, uh, to give us the capacity for speech, to give us the capacity. Think of all the harm that we have the, the potential to inflict on somebody. And uh, tremendous harm that we can verbally inflict upon somebody. Why would God risk giving us that capacity, that potential damage to be done? Well, because the, the reward outweighs the risk, in God's view anyway, in terms of the purpose for blessing, the purpose for speech, it's with the same mouth that we curse, it's the same mouth that we bless, it's the same tongue. And, and so to give us that capacity to celebrate Jesus Christ, to give us the capacity to communicate the high regard that we have for Jesus Christ. For God to equip us that way means that we have to be equipped with the means to communicate some pretty horrible things. All right, The fact that he has entrusted us with this responsibility is extraordinary. And when you think of, of all the, the realms of creation that, that bark and chirp and meow and moo and um, all the other noises that animals make, right? And, uh, and yet here we have the capacity not just to utter audible noises that communicate, but to express verbally the very heart, the very mind. You know, I mean, and the distinction between, and, and I'm not going to make friends this morning with the, with the animal rights people, but the distinguish between animal communication and human communication is like night and day. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Well, so are our ways higher than the animal ways. You know, in terms of you know they can coordinate and communicate, and they can warn each other with barks, and they can they can depending on how smart they are and how clever they are, they can they can coordinate some hunting and some other things. They can communicate fear. They can communicate pain. They can communicate you know on a basic level, but. They're not going to sit down and discuss with one another their hopes and dreams for uh, what their grandchildren are going to do for the glory of Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, That's what you and I get to do. You and I get to communicate our heart, our thinking. Uh, that we get to put into words. No animal can do that. No animal has the higher order reasoning in order to do that. See, the sole capacity to do that. All right. So, uh, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Chapter 12 and verse 18. Proverbs 12, 18. That's our next reference here, the, this place of concealment. There is um, one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, we have the imagery here whereby verbal communication hurts. All right? Uh, speaking rationally like the thrust of a sword. And uh, the, the corollary then, the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the same tongue, the same mouth, the same verbal capacity that can build up can also tear down. We're going to see this again and again and again more than a few times. All right? And... Um, like the thrust of a sword, what's the nature of a thrust? What's the nature of speaking rashly? Well, speaking rashly means quickly, without thought, too quickly to react to, without thinking about it. On a surprise basis, before you even knew the attack was coming, here comes the thrust of the sword. 
all right? And I realize that uh, the, the Hollywood movies and whatever, the, the big hacking, slashing, sweeping movements are great for the choreography because the camera picks them up and, and they're very melodramatic and they show up. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the, the Princess Bride swashbuckler type films, right? But more damage gets done with a thrust than it does with the, the sweeping uh, movement of the sword. And that's what we see here, the thrust of the sword and, um, and that. All right. Chapter, uh, let's go to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. See another application. Psalm 55 and verse 21. I wonder if I can just detach the uh, keyboard and reattach it. I think that would help. That, te- that tends to be a standard Microsoft device. <laughs> Just reboot. All right. There we go. All right. Where am I? Psalm 55 and verse 21. Hmm. There's a longer context on this. How much of this do I want to grab this morning? Um, there's a tremendous amount here. Psalm 55 has been a favorite of mine for a long, long time. As he um, is dealing with rebellion, as he's dealing with uh, the treason, um, when he says in verse 12, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who uh, hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I would hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. When, when Ahithophel turned traitor, when Ahithophel advised Absalom in stealing David's throne, it was one of the worst things that David could have imagined was, was Ahithophel. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst." As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Even uh, evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. How fervent are we in our prayers at evening and morning and at noon? Are we praying without ceasing? Are we nonstop? Are we around the clock? Are we in a season right now of such bitterness that we need this kind of incessant, uh, incessant, incessant prayer? Verse 18, he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are, there are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old. You know, isn't that something? He's losing his throne, but he's leaving his case in the, in the hands of the one who is enthroned from of old, with whom there is no change and who do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him, he has violated his covenant. So after the Salah, now we have a change of context. With, with whom there is no change and who do not fear God, he has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. So you see the betrayal here? You see this is treason. This is unexpected. This is a surprise attack. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, Yet they were drawn swords. They were drawn swords. And that's the nature of, of words and how hurtful they can be and how they can sneak up on you. 
and you don't even realize as it's being slid into your gut uh, because it just seems so soft. It seems so gentle, smoother than butter, (laughs) softer than oil. And yet look at the damage that gets done. All right. Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. We can claim that as a promise there. All right, that's Psalm 55. A couple of chapters over to Psalm 57 and verse 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. And that's, a, that's an awful lot of armament to, to fit in one mouth, <laughs> right? And yet there it is. You know, I mean, when, if they run out of swords, they've got spears. If they run out of spears, they've got arrows. Uh, they seem to have everything necessary, and, uh, and it's all inside their mouth. There it is, okay? And so the nature of the mouth in terms of the, uh, the danger and the violence. That's Psalm 57 in verse 4. Psalm 59 in verse 7. Uh, let's see. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Starts off with verse 1 here. This is when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill David. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Okay? As bad as our nation's getting, there are not yet arrest warrants that are being issued against pastor teachers for teaching doctrine. Uh, we can be thankful for that. But can you imagine? Your king wants you dead, and here's the arrest warrant. How do we respond? Deliver me, Psalm 59, 2. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression or for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine they run uh, and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. Verse 5, you, O Lord, a God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Uh, verse 6, they return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? And, and they just feel like there's no consequences. They can do whatever they want to do. Who's going to stop them? Who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. So there's Psalm 59 and verse 7. Finally then, Psalm 64, 3. Psalm 64, 3. Another Davidic psalm. Hear my voice, O God, and my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aim their bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. So this is the nature of it. This is the the nature of the wicked mouth that conceals violence. They just attack from out of the blue. And uh, we have to be aware of that. We want to be on guard. All right, so there's verse 6. Move on to verse 7, and we've got contrasting legacies. Proverbs 10, 7. The next verse in this inclusio. 
The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Contrasting legacies include eternal memory or eternal decay. And eternal decay. Couldn't make up my mind how I wanted to write that. Or and. Contrasting legacies include. So I guess it should be and. Contrasting legacies include. So there's the contrasting legacy of the righteous, the contrasting legacy of the wicked. And one is an eternal memory to never be forgotten. The other is eternal decay to never be remembered. To never be remembered. The memory of which is perishing from the earth. And when the new heavens and the new earth are formed, all those former things will never be brought to mind ever again. Whereas you and I, are are we included in that? Are we included in the former things? Is this life never going to be remembered again? Well, we are among the former things, but guess what? We're also part of the all things made new. We're the new creation in Christ. And so uh, I think that has to be included as well if you're going to study the, the nature of eternal forgetfulness. But let's look at it. The memory of the righteous is blessed. The memory is blessed, right? If you think about different folks in your past or different folks um, that you have memory of, and when you think back, is it a pleasant memory or an unpleasant memory? Or probably a little of both, <laughs> right? Depending on the person you're thinking about. Uh, but think about a day that's coming in which every memory is a positive memory because none of the wicked memories will be brought to mind ever again. Is that possible to imagine? <laughs> you say, wow, that sounds like heaven. You mean, you mean an existence whereby every memory is a positive memory? Yeah. Because even the negative memories perish. See? So you'll see what I mean as we deal with these things. But it's on the one hand and on the other hand. It's the righteous and it's the wicked. And interestingly enough, it may even be an inverse proportion, right? It may even be inversely proportional to the amount of time people spend building their legacy. <laughs> okay? And what do I mean by that? I mean, an awful lot of unbelievers spend an awful lot of time trying to build a name for themselves and trying to, to leave a mark on this world or trying to leave something by which they're going to be remembered. Whereas an awful lot of believers spend, hopefully, spend an awful lot of time serving Jesus Christ and glorifying Him. And that's ultimately the key right there. As we glorify Christ, that's the name we're building for ourselves. We're not building our own name for ourselves. We're building His name for ourselves. We're casting our crowns at His feet. We're serving Him for all eternity. All that we are and all that we have is is in Him. We're fellow heirs with Him. So hopefully uh, those things will be clear as well. Here's what we're talking about. Let's go to Psalm 112. Psalm 112, Matthew 26, and then Luke 1. I think a trinity of passages there is is useful to consider. Psalm 112 and verse 6. Some verses to keep in mind if... um, if you want to build a name for yourself, right? I mean, do you want your grandchildren someday, your great-grandchildren, you know? Who, uh, who are the, the scions of the, the scions of my house? Hey, is that silency? Scion of my house. Who's going to inherit the Bolander millions? All right? The endowment, the, like the Carnegie endowment. All right. Understand, of course, in the spiritual realm. I'm talking metaphor here. 
Psalm 112, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. Wow, that sounds exciting. Like I get to produce Nephilim or something? How how does this work? Okay, no, they're going to be mighty in the word of God because I'm going to make sure that's a priority in my family, for my children, for my grandchildren, for anyone that I have influence with. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. You're talking about long-term investing, okay? Something that's not subject to the, to the rise and fall of different markets. <coughs> Headed for verse 6. Verse 4 says, Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with a man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. So things that we do on earth that have a reflection in judgment day, in eternity. For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. Do you want to be remembered forever? This is how you do it. It's your righteousness. It's about the the treasure that you're laying up in heaven. It's the glory that you bring to Jesus Christ. It's all that you do as gold, silver, and precious stones to, to glorify our Savior. That's going to be remembered forever. It's going to be spoken of forever. Okay? Uh, Matthew 26, 13. So, yeah, it's not, uh, you know, climbing Mount Everest or uh, some other feat, some other achievement on this earth, what you're going to be known for. All this earthly stuff's going to be forgotten. Another example. Um, this is the episode where this woman is anointing his feet and the disciples are complaining about it because it was a vial of very costly perfume and uh, what it might have been sold for and, and that kind of thing. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. You notice that? Now, let me ask you something. Has this verse been fulfilled? Do we live this verse out today? What day on the calendar is it that we get together and we commemorate the uh, alabaster vile perfume lady. Okay, is that a hallmark? I don't. I haven't seen that on a hallmark calendar lately. Right? When do we speak of that lady? Well, it's not. It hadn't happened yet. I believe it's, it's still future. I believe it's in the resurrection. I believe that it's when all of us are speaking of that which we did for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whatever connection, and whatever service, and and all these things. And this woman, what she did, is going to be spoken of. We're going to encounter her and we're going to know her for what she is. I believe at a glance we're going to spot her. We're going to go, oh, you're the alabaster perfume lady. Tell me about it. Okay? And she will never get tired of telling that story a thousand times and probably more stories than that. All right? If you think about it, I I, I really ponder the nature of our resurrection bodies, the nature of, of the resurrection. How is it when you, when you read Luke 15 and you read the, the rich man and Lazarus and they die and they go to 
the rich man goes to, to torments and Lazarus goes to, to uh, paradise. And, and Abraham looks across the gulf and he sees that rich man. He had never seen that rich man before in his life. And yet at a glance, he says, in your life you had your good things, Lazarus had his bad things, now Lazarus is being comforted here and you're being tormented over there. At a glance, Abraham knew the whole background, the whole backstory, the whole life story, the whole, you know what I'm saying? I believe it's, there's, there's a capacity that, that we don't have yet, but we will. There's a capacity nowadays, here on earth, immortality nowadays, if, uh, if you and I get to know some, uh, a person and we get to know, man, this is a, this is a tender heart or this is a, a fractured soul or this is a hurt sister or this is a, this is a strong brother or what have you, you and I can gauge the soul of another person. But it doesn't, it takes more than just a glance, okay? It takes time, it takes conversation, it takes prayer, it takes investment. And you probably don't get there with a whole lot of people other than your spouse and your pastor and your church and, and maybe, you know, just a small, your immediate family, children. But at a glance, Abraham knew the rich man and his whole life story and the miserableness of his soul and why he was so tormented, why he wanted a messenger to go back and warn his brothers and all that. And I think that's extraordinary. I think it's a description. And here's another one. You know, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. How are we going to know who she is? How, I mean, is she going to walk around with a name tag? Is she going to walk around with a hat? Is she going to have a sandwich board that says, I'm that, I'm the alabaster vile perfume lady from, from Matthew 26? Okay. She won't need that. Any more than Lazarus will need that. Any more than David will need that. Any more than any of us will need that. I believe that we will see him as he is, and we will see us as we are. And I think it's, it's an extraordinary thing to consider. Anyway, I continue to chew on concepts like that. But it will be spoken of in memory of her. So here is an eternal production that will have eternal memory. It's the wicked that lose the memory, the righteous do not. And don't think that, well, nobody sees, nobody cares, there's no reward, okay? Oh, there's reward. Your Father who sees in secret will repay. And the reward is eternal. We need to, we need to broaden our appreciation for these things. Finally, then Luke one forty-eight. Luke one forty-eight. Of course, we know what's going on in Luke chapter 1, don't we? The promise of the birth to... Uh, Mary, well, before that is the promise of the birth to Elizabeth, of the coming birth of John the Baptist, and then the promise of uh, the birth of Jesus to Mary. And that's what we have here. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Just show that verse to a Mary worshiper if you encounter him. <laughs> Say, Look, Mary's not the co redemptrix, she's not the queen of heaven. She has a Savior. She needs a Savior. And uh, she's going to carry the Savior in her womb. That's an amazing thing. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Now the same question I had for you about the alabaster violady. Okay? Is this fulfilled today? Is this fulfilled today? 
I don't think so. I, I think this is we're waiting for the resurrection. We're waiting for the time when Christ Himself, when these rewards are being provided. I think what we have today is a malappropriation uh, of a promise. We have the twisting of a command. We have Mariolatry, the worship of Mary, that is couched because of a verse like this, that, oh, we've got we've to count her blessed. We've got to hail Mary full of grace. Let's, let's do some Hail Marys and, and earn something here. Well, they don't do that with the alabaster vial lady. Why don't they do that with her? Say, no, it's going to be a, uh, an eternal privilege that uh, she will have to tell that story and to, uh, to tell even more stories. How many more stories are there to tell that aren't in the Bible? Okay. Anyway, um, legacies, eternal memory. You know, are, are people going to be telling stories about you in, in a generation, in two generations, in three generations? They, they might know who you are. They might have your name on a family tree somewhere. But how much are they really going to know about you? Say, now the point is for all eternity, the testimony that we get to give, not because we're special, but because Christ is special. And we get to portray that, that uh, blessing to glorify Jesus Christ. Then there's the flip side. The eternal decay. The name that's forgotten. The name that's totally abandoned. And we have this, uh, in, of course Proverbs 10 is what started this study. We go to Job 18. Job 18. The earliest book of the Bible. And in my mind, in these early patriarchal centuries, as um, the the as Noah and his sons are still alive, as we're we're in these generations between Noah and Abraham, as we're dealing with the early years of the post-flood world, um, a, a concept that ought to be near and dear to all of their hearts is the idea of a legacy of memory of of the consequences of sin. All right, the wrath of God that comes upon the whole world as in, in terms of what he did at the flood. You know, I mean, when, you, when, you, when distance is separated, then you start to lose focus, okay? We have fewer and fewer people around that remember World War II, and they start to lose perspective. We have fewer and fewer people around that remember the, the Depression, and people lose perspective. And you just you end up with these millennials that think it's always been like this. All right, and just you t- totally lose perspective. Well, understand in the book of Job, you're dealing with people that are still, the flood is still living memory. Noah's flood is still living memory when you read the book of Job. Don't ever lose that, or I think you miss the point of the book of Job. So, verses 17 through 21 here of, of uh, Job 18, and without reading an entire chapter. Uh, this is, see, Bildad's not wrong in this chapter. He's just wrong at assigning it to Job, okay? But when he talks about the light of the wicked goes out in verse 5, when he talks about consequences for living in defiance of the Word of God, yes, there's consequences for living in defiance of the Word of God. And it's pretty ugly. All the way down through verse 5 through verse 16, then we get to verse 17. Memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. He is driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no offspring or posterity among his people, nor any survivor where he sojourned. I mean, if the criminal is that vicious and that vile, 
they yeah they get wiped out they get they get killed their family gets killed they get sent away from somewhere and uh, this is what we have described here he has no offspring or posterity among his people nor any survivor where he sojourned verse 20 those in the west are appalled at his fate and those in the east are seized with horror well that kind of covers everybody right <laughs> if you got those on the west on the one hand and those on the east on the other hand we were talking about everybody Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. And in Bildad's theory, anyway, that was supposed to wake Job up. (laughs) That was going to be the rebuke that would just wake up Job to say, oh man, you're right. Uh, The wicked person is just in for all kinds of ugly things, and I better just repent right now. Okay? Well, Job doesn't respond that way. He said, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? All right. These guys were not providing help uh, for Job in, in any respect. But So for the moment, overlooking the fact, of course, that Bildad is misdirected, that he's, he's wrong about assigning this kind of guilt to, uh, to Job, nevertheless, on a general principle basis as wisdom literature, uh, the, we can view these on, you know, on an accurate basis and recognize as a rule, as a general principle, when, when those that are living in, in defiance of the Word of God, those that are living in this, these, these open lives of, of total wickedness, um, not only does God not put up with that, fellow man doesn't often put up with that. I mean, just your, your fellow human beings are going to come along and put an end to all that flagrant wickedness. Who wants to, who wants to surround themselves with that? And uh, different things there, all right? Psalm 9, verses 5 and 6. Almost like we saw on Sunday with... Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, right? When even the unbelievers are saying, eh, we're not doing that, that's, that's a warning, okay? When even unbelievers are uh, drawing a line at, at your sinfulness. Psalm 9, verses 5 and 6. Other examples. Kind of went overboard on this, didn't I? We got more, not so many examples on the eternal memory and we got more and more examples of eternal forgetfulness. All right, Psalm 9. Another Davidic psalm. And uh, probably connected to Psalm 10, I, I suspect, if I remember right. I think these two psalms are linked, but um, either way. Um, Verse 3 says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. Even trying to remember who they are to talk about their fall is hard to do sometimes. Okay, and we end up in similar things as well with some different folks that, you know, if we didn't have the Bible, we wouldn't know about a whole lot of folks. We, in fact, for centuries, Hittites were, were laughed at, mocked. All the Bible skeptics and God haters and so forth, they thought the Bible was so silly because the Bible would talk about Uriah the Hittite and all these other Hittites and secular history until the 1800s never could find the Hittites and started to think, well, they must not have ever existed until archaeology finally found them and found that they were a very large empire and they'd fought battles against Egypt and Assyria and different groups. 
So uh, before you start doubting the reliability of the scriptures, just relax. <laughs> okay, God knows what he's talking about. But that's an example. If we didn't have the Bible, would we have known about Hittites all those years? And would archaeologists have gone digging them up and looking for them and trying to find their language and trying to, to uncover their, their territory? They never would have even thought of it. See. Anyway, I got to wonder how many more are out there that we don't even remember anymore, that history has totally lost what they were called. Uh, Isaiah 14. What do we think of when we think about Isaiah 14? Lucifer, that's right, fall of Satan. Okay. Isaiah 14 is one of the deepest passages anywhere in the Bible. It's got the five eye wills of Satan. It's got his rebellion. It has a a portrait of what he was like before he fell and a description of his boasting as he fell. There's a tremendous amount here in, in this chapter. And depending on who you're reading anymore, most people today just ignore it and say, well, Satan's not even in the chapter. But even there... I think there's, there's a spectrum of folks that just limit it um, only to the immediate context of, you know, uh, 12, maybe 12 through 14, and then they go right back to some human being again for the rest of the chapter. I tend to broaden it out. I tend to actually bring in angelic understanding way up in verse 4. Take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say... And the whole thing from verse 4 onward is a direct rebuke of Satan himself. Not just picking it up with uh, verses 11 and following. Uh, Your pomp and the music of your harps has been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. This is his title. This is Halel ben Shachar, one of the titles for Satan. In the Vulgate, it was known as Lucifer. That's how we ended up through the Latin. We ended up with the name Lucifer. And then the I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. But notice, before you even get to those five I wills, there's the here's what you've done. Right in verse 12, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Well, what nations are those? What's the context for this? And there's a larger picture here than most folks ever give it credit for. Verse 15, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol. He has these five vows about self-exaltation and God says, no, you won't. I am casting you down to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. They will ponder over you. So for a time, there has to be a finite time where the lesson will be learned, where the object lesson will be taught, where the, 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 the fall, right? The fall of the house of Usher, <laughs> or the fall of Satan, okay? Will be used as a teaching device. They will ponder over you. They will say, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? And I think this is when he's bound for the thousand years in the, in the abyss for the millennial reign. All right, Because once he's pulled out of there and thrown in the lake of fire, then it's sealed off for all eternity. And who wants to ever think of that again? But for the thousand years, he's going to be put there on display. 
And it's supposed to be an object lesson where we look at him and say, man, that's the adversary, that's the devil, that's the prowling one. And for you and I, of course, we'll be resurrected, but for folks with divine viewpoint, they'll be able to look at that and just with utter disdain, with utter scorn, to go, man, look at that. Here's our Savior on the throne of David, and here's that dragon down in the pit. What a contrast. Except, what else happens? There's a carnal-mindedness at work that is going to be a, a faction within humanity that's going to say, no, no, pull him out of there. We want him to reign. Pull him out of there. Release him. We want him on the throne. Get rid of Jesus. We don't want Jesus on the throne anymore. Pull him out. Satan must be released for a short time, we're told, at the end of that thousand-year reign of Christ. It's extraordinary. And so there's the pondering in verse 16. There's the expression of the tohu, like the tohu wabohu statement in verse 17. Who made the world like a wilderness, who overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. And we've seen this. This happens. Japanese, Germans, other forces, you're about to lose the war and you don't want your prisoners to go home, so what do you do? You kill them. You, you, you execute them before they can be re- uh, redeemed, before they can be rescued. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. See, the worst thing about a burial is there's a stone there. There's a memorial stone there. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. How do we end them even being mentioned ever again? How do you keep something from ever being mentioned ever again? You stop it from being remembered ever again. If they never remember it, how can they mention it? Say. All right. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Verse 22, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord uh, of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. So there's no more memory. May they not be mentioned forever in verse 20 cutting off name and uh, posterity, declares the Lord, utterly removing them from all remembrance. All remembrance. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Former things, including all of these unbelievers, including the fallen angels, including everything that's been cast into the fire for uh, uh, eternal destruction, all of that is included in former things. Well, what about us? Are we former things? Will we forget who we are? Is the new earth just like one great big global amnesia episode? But we don't remember the past? No. Because remember that alabaster vile woman, her her work is going to be remembered. It's going to be remembered forever. It will always be spoken of. See? So we have both sides of this coin. We want to understand it for what it is. 
but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. So there's the never and the forever. And the contrast from verse 17 to verse 18. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for for gladness. Now, the church is not in here because we're a mystery, but we would be included. We'd have to be. We're part of the new things. We're part of all things made new. We're the new creation in the body of Christ. So don't look for us in Isaiah 65, but you can certainly find us in uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Jeremiah 17, 13. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Written down. Written down where? Okay, those books. Those books for judgment. They're going to be part of those that are taken away. Part of those that are going to be removed. Isn't it interesting? They're, They're busy trying to build a huge legacy for themselves and God's got them written down in His book. And, uh, that's where they're going. That's Jeremiah, Ezekiel twenty-eight nineteen. Uh, what's Ezekiel twenty-eight? It's the parallel to Isaiah fourteen, right? It's uh, another pre-existent or pre-fall view of Satan. In, in uh, Isaiah 14, he's called Halel ben Shachar, and here he's called Hachith. Um, okay, I'm always forgetting that. Uh, but verse 19 here, All who know you among the people are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Do we take that as non-existence, as annihilationalism? No, we take that as the end of his memory. He will never be remembered ever again not annihilationalism because it's eternal destruction and uh nice way of phrasing it there matthew twenty five forty one. depart go into the fire eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels so he will say to those on his left depart from me accursed ones accursed ones into the eternal fire so when does that go out <laughs> trick question when does your eternal life end trick question it doesn't it never stops it never ends if this eternal fire can go out then so too can your eternal life into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels that's the destiny finally second thessalonians 1 9 the last description on this one that maybe we overlook in all of our other approaches to Antichrist and tribulation and end times. And it's unfortunate because I think there's a lot here. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Remember they had, had, they had received some false teaching about maybe missing the rapture. And uh, that could get some people upset, right? So Paul says, don't get upset. You know the doctrine. Don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. And then he says, uh, you know, Christ is still coming. Second Advent is still on the way. Um, 
Anyway, uh, it is only verse 6, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty, notice, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction eternal destruction. This isn't a dimension that you and I have a hard time thinking. You and I are are so finite, it's just hard to imagine taking a piece of paper and eternally destroying it. I don't want to do that one. But let me just rip a piece of paper in half and then rip a piece of paper and here's one. Rip a piece of paper in half and then rip a piece of paper in half and then keep ripping and keep ripping. Eventually though, what do you end up with? You You got little crumbs here that are so small and so tiny that you know, it's, it's beyond our capacity. We reach a point where we say it cannot be destroyed any more than that. It, it, we have a completed action, right? A finite destruction. I mean, eventually, I suppose you get down to molecules or something, right? And then subatomic particles, you just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller, just destroying, 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 destroying. When can we finally get to a point where we say, all right, we're done, there's nothing left to destroy? Well, with physical things, yeah. But the soul's not physical. The body's not going into the lake of fire. Okay? Not this mortal body. I think there'll be a resurrection of death, in which case they have a form that will go in. But these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. It never stops. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You know, unbelievers today still breathe God's air. They still feel God's wind. They still see God's sunshine. See? They don't know how good they've got it. In uh, even just everything that God provides in common grace, that's going to be gone. Light itself is going to be gone. The fire is is a dark fire. All right. Well, those are the legacies there. We'll come back and uh, talk about this intimacy of walking humbly with our God. And uh, I'll just give you a preview of verse 8. There's an intimacy here. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Receiving commands shows you the nature of personal intimacy of, of walking humbly with his God. You're receiving commands. You're receiving commands all day, every day. There's never a time that you're not listening to what God might tell you next. You are constantly receiving commands. Whereas the babbling fool never takes time to listen to what God has to say because he's always impressing people with what he's got to say. <laughs> All right. Receiving commands demonstrates the personal intimacy of a believer walking humbly with his God. And we'll deal with that as well. But that'll be in two weeks. Remember, there's no class next week. Did I announce that already? No class next week. I need to announce that. I won't be here if you. Randy, do you want to teach something? Okay. Well, then uh, you're off next week, uh, but I'll be back in two weeks. So keep your armor on. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, uh, open our eyes to your understanding. Thank you for uh, glory on the head and the wickedness in the mouth and teach us these contrasts and these distinctions. Teach us all things, Father, that we might make the appropriate application 
Father, um, I thank you for the eternal legacy, the eternal memory. Uh, I've got loved ones that have departed, but the memory lives on, and that's my blessing. And that memory is going to continue and just get better and better, Father, in the, in the resurrection. So I thank you for that as well. In all these things, Father, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.